Okay, we're underway. Uh, this is Glenn Lowry at The Glenn Show, uh, originally of bloggingheads.tv, now at uh, my YouTube channel, Glenn Lowry uh, Show, and at uh, my Substack newsletter, uh, glennlowry.substack.com. I'm with Robert Woodson. Robert Woodson is the founder and the president of the Woodson Center in Washington, D.C. He's an old friend of mine going back decades and is a, uh, an activist and a leader a civil rights leader and, and a visionary uh, figure on questions of social justice and equality, uh, especially for people of color. Uh, Bob's been around for a long time. The Woodson Center, uh, based in Washington, D.C., houses uh, numerous projects that uh, develop uh, Bob's uh, vision uh, along a number of fronts. And I just I'm honored uh, to be able to talk with him. Uh, here at the Glenn Show today, so welcome, Bob, and thank you for joining me. Well, it's been it's been a pleasure, always a pleasure to be with you, Glenn. Over the years, uh, I've always you always uh, uh, are exciting person to listen to because you're very challenging. So I always considered uh, a challenge to to have dialogue with you. It's never boring. <laughs> well, see, people should understand. I'm I'm a professor. I'm Ivy League. I'm Ivory Tower, theoretician, you know, Harvard, MIT, Boston University, Brown University. And Bob is a very uh, practical brother who is uh, grounded uh, in the work on the streets and who has patience, but not unlimited <laughs> patience <laughs> for academics. I've been involved in some interesting conference debates where Bob has been confronting experts, you know, the people who do the studies, you know, the people who come with the statistics. And Bob has gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with them as to whether or not what they're doing is really helpful for solving the problems that confront the people in this country. So uh, <laughs> it's good. To, it's always good to to joust with you, Bob. Yeah, it is. But what I what I enjoy about having exchanges, passionate exchanges with you, Glenn, is that you you debate you debate but and probe for the purpose of enlightenment. It isn't to prevail or to win. And and I always find uh, that very. Uh, I enjoy having those kind of exchanges. Um, and so, and that's what I find that exciting about the way you approach it. You're not trying to prevail over somebody. You're trying to see clarity. You're trying to bring insight into, into a situation. And that's what's needed. Uh, in the civil rights movement, people don't realize that we had our own Tea Party movement within the civil rights movement. Civil rights movement was no, not monolithic. We had all kinds of fracturings that occur. The whole National Baptist Convention uh, that and and the Progressive Baptist Convention split uh, with Y. T. Walker and Dr. King going to the National Baptist Convention on the issue of of of, of, of direct action, uh, civil disobedience, and it was opposed, and so they split. But there is no debate today within the Black community as to the course of the future, uh, and that's what I found disappointing and and harmful to the very people who are most vulnerable, that we don't have debate anymore inside. It's always you take the progressive white position uh, with regard to race. You see, everything must be viewed through the lens of race. And, and it's, it is one of the most depressing and I think self-defeating uh, stances we could take. Okay, Bob, here we are. We sit here at the end of the year 2021. We're almost uh... Uh, just a few days uh, from the new year. It's been a momentous year uh, on the very issues that you're talking about. Uh, defund the police has uh, been a movement that's been put out there. It's been tested at the ballot box. And I think it's fair to conclude that we have a fair amount of evidence that a lot of people have some very serious doubts about defund the police. Uh, Black Lives Matter continues to uh, dominate uh, you know, the discussion about these racial issues. We have the first African-American vice president of the United States who uh, sits in office. We have uh, distractions like the uh, Jesse Smollett uh, scandal about the hoax and uh, whatnot. We have uh, trials of police officers that are gathering uh, the attention of the electorate. Um, we have massive legislation underway in Congress that's advertised in part as uh, addressing some of the problems that you're talking about. 
I'm just wondering, given all that's going on that's swirling around us, you know, you've been in this business for a long time. Uh, how do you read uh, the current state of America and of Black America? And, and what do you think uh, are the most promising developments that are, uh, that are afoot now? Well, before I can get to the most promising uh, events, and I, and I want to spend the bulk of the time talking about solutions, because I think people are tired of gladiatorial combat that masquerades as political discussion, and they are desperate for solutions. But I, I, as the reason that I left the civil rights movement in the first place, because I, I believe then and I believe now that low, there is no monolithic single black community. And I think that a lot of middle class blacks who were part of the whole civil rights structure, you know, when they left the civil rights movement, they, they, got, they, they came into elected office uh, they 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 change they they change the picket signs and exchange it for uh, a gavel, and so they have sought and and they were elected officers on the promise that conditions for all blacks would improve if only you put us in place of white folks running these cities, and they also spent over twenty two trillion dollars on programs uh, coming from the poverty program. They were the ones who administered these programs. And so you got uh, you got the political power now. There's more money that was spent in the poor and poverty than you can buy all the agricultural land. More money that we spent collectively on all the wars that we've ever fought, and and yet conditions in those same cities now are horrible. Where you're seeing the out of wedlock births soar, the violence, and 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 the question is that never gets really addressed, Glenn, is. The promise was if you elect us to office, put us in political power, give us the money to manage our own affairs, life would be improved. Yet we're finding it's worse now than it was back then. And, and so, and I really think that race is being used as, as to deflect attention away from having to address these critical uh, problems. When whites were at their worst under segregation, we were at our best. I was born in segregation. I can't think of a single time when an elderly person was mugged in their own community. I can't think of one time when a child was shot in their crib. I can't think of a single time when I heard a gun go off from the time I was in school. So, so the question is, how did things get worse when we are the ones running these uh, institutions in these cities? And I really think that that's the critical question that must be addressed. But we can avoid addressing it as long as we can point to institutional racism or uh, as the culprit. And we can say that being black today means dumbing down standards for blacks and um, in, in, in inequities. You know, it, it, okay. so, so these are, that's the problem. The, the, there's a lot on the table. I want to try to tease out some of it. I mean, one thing is class divisions within the African-American community that I hear you saying. I hear you saying these cities have been run by Black people. These are Black people with education. These are Black people with access uh, to political power. Uh, who get positions, who are employees, who have interests, who have financial interests who have their own vision of the world. And then there are the masses of, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I see a class division. The other thing I see you saying is a critique of policy, which is a, a critique that could be valid, even if the people administering the policy were not drawn from the black middle class, they could be white people administering the policy, but you're saying the war on poverty hasn't worked. We've been throwing money at problems and uh, they have not been, uh, they have not borne fruit. So I want to take those one at a time. I'm going to talk about black leadership and its relationship to the masses, because it's not obvious to me why the people who end up as mayor, as police chief, as city, uh, uh, you know, state's attorney, uh, as running a, a grant or whatever, are necessarily, uh, you know, not interested in or not serving the needs of their people. Uh, and policy is a separate question, it seems to me. And, and I would like to I'd like to come back to that. But. Can we talk a little bit about black leadership? Yes. Well, first of all, as an economist, <laughs> you know that once you that if you it is possible to have perverse incentives. 
The 70 cents of every dollar spent on the poor does not go to them, but those who serve the poor. And they ask which problems are fundable, not which ones are solvable. So we have created a commodity out of poor people. And, and, and so as a consequence, if, if, my, if my future and my career depends upon your being dependent, Glenn, I have no economic incentives to make you independent. And that's the structural perverse incentives that exist right now to a lot of middle class people. A black enterprise did an assessment of the economic uh, disparities within the black community. And they said the biggest income gap is not between whites and blacks, it's upper income blacks and lower income blacks. And, and if racism is the single culprit, the question is why aren't all blacks suffering equally? And they're not. And that is because uh, we have, there are structural perverse incentives to maintain poor people. In Britain. For instance, Nixon gave the Urban League $93 million when he took office. That's half a billion dollars in today's dollars to reduce poverty. The Ford Foundation, Carnegie, all chipped in millions more to address poverty. You should go back and, before, and, and look at what happened. What the, there's been no report on that. The Ford, found that the Ford uh, administration came in after Nixon was left office and did an audit of what happened to that money. A lot of it had to be paid back, but there's no discussion of what happened to that money, Glenn. I can, uh, I, okay. I can give you other examples uh, of, of, of 73 to 93 Three billion dollars spent on federal communications to promote ownership of black broadcast properties. What these people did in twenty years was took that money, kept it for uh, these properties, and then sold it back to the white companies. So as a consequence, after three billion dollars, uh, there were fewer blacks owning broadcast properties in the country than they were before. In the meantime, the, the uh, uh, they took that money and as a windfall and walked away. There are all kinds of examples of where money's programs were set up to help all black people, but they benefited the middle class at the expense of the poor. Bob, I don't doubt uh, that a lot of money has been wasted, but I want you to address, I mean, some of the specifics of these programs, because it seems to me the bulk of the money is not actually ending up, the bulk of the money of the welfare state is not actually ending up in the hands of service providers. It's transfers to the people themselves. I mean, so uh, AFDC, now TANF, where checks are going out to families, uh, food stamps, where subsidized uh, access to food is being uh, underwritten by the government, uh, Medicaid, where access to health care is being uh, paid for by uh, uh, government funds, uh, housing assistance and vouchers and Section 8 and all of that. Where I mean, I'm not saying these things are good or bad, but I, I'm saying they're not going to the salaries of the bureaucrats. They're, they're going uh, to either directly or indirectly cover the expenses of these households. You would do away with all of no, that? No, 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 no. It's not a matter of doing away with it. I would restructure it so the more of it goes in vouchers directly to people. Glenn, you need to look at up from, up, uh, up from uh, plantation. It was an exhaustive study done under the Bush administration, Chuck Hobbs at the White House, looked at all of the growth of these programs over the course of 50 years. And they found that the, the, there was a 100% increase over the period of time of, of cash payments going directly to the poor versus a thousand uh, uh, expansion of monies going, uh, going to the bureaucrats. I'm telling you, what you're saying is just not true. It is not verifiable by evidence that the bulk of the money was cash going to poor people. The bulk of that money went to administration of those programs. Uh, for instance, in, in public housing, the, 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 the goes to the housing authority. Uh, Al Jackson was the uh, housing authority director here in Washington. He found that there are 86 properties. There were 100 cars used by administrative staff and only four maintenance vehicles for the, the properties <laughs> in the district. That the more that the people tear the properties up, it's, then it qualifies for comprehensive rehab. And then contractors of the friends get money. Glenn, it, 
Yeah, what about the programs I just named? What about what about Medicaid? How much of the budget is going to underwrite health care? Again, what about food stamps, which I understand has expanded again, greatly? It's not just poor people, etc. Again, AFDC. These are direct payments to people. I would uh, let. I will send you some studies that looks at where the money goes. I, I'm 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 not an economist, but I can read. Uh, and but I'm yeah, telling you, I, I, no, I, I don't I don't want to argue the numbers as such. I, I, I want to get to the point of whether or not the government trying to help poor people by providing these services, health care, like what you schools, do about health care, nutrition, nutrition. No, I mean, OK, OK, let's, okay, let's talk. Let's talk about health care. Uh, I was involved with John McKnight um, some years ago, at the University of Chicago, in Europe. And we looked at what in, in this one set, this neighborhood. We looked at what is the cost of health care, and they saying that Medicaid, okay, that that it, what are the factors that why why is it so high? They found that it was overuse of emergency rooms in this community. Okay, people were going in and said that so you you set up a panel of grassroots people and a panel of experts to, at planners who said, okay, what is the cost of the high cost of health care? Okay, they said overuse. Of, uh, of of the hospitals, emergency rooms. Okay, what? Why are they being used? Uh, dog bites. Uh, women taking babies in to emergency rooms when they have a small fever, um, and there and and so there were a number of, of of asthma attacks. Okay, and so what what the grassroots people did and looking at what were the use rather than approaching it as a health problem, what they do was a public health problem. They found out the asthma cases were coming from four major buildings in the community. And the solution isn't to continue to pay for the treatment, but pay, change the filters in these buildings. And as a consequence, you got a dramatic reduction in the number of people needing to go to there. They also recommended putting a nursing station in the community so that moms can take their babies when they're sick to these. And so when they instituted these kind of uh, uh, community reforms and changing the behavior and, uh, of people in there and, and whatnot, there were dramatic reductions in the health care costs in that community. But if you were to just look at it in terms of how much the government is spending, uh, as if that's a measure of the, of the health of the people, there is no relationship between what we spend any more than it is in the education. What is the per capita expenditure in public schools for kids going to those same schools and outcomes for kids? And, and so, but, you know. So. Okay. I mean, I, I, I was listening to you and I heard you say that if you're talking about healthcare, involvement of local knowledge and uh, people who have connections on the ground can allow you to more efficiently address whatever the healthcare needs of the community might be. There's still going to be a need to provide uh, resources oh, to uh, take care of, of, of people. So people are going to get cancer. They're going to get diabetes. Uh, they, they're going to get tuberculosis. Yeah, but I was challenging. But I was challenging your position that somehow how much we spend is a measure of uh, of effectiveness in in a health. Somehow, the more okay. we spend, the healthier people are, and therefore that no, I'm saying to you how you invest in these makes all the difference in the world. It isn't how much you spend, it's how well it is directed and who benefits. If I'm a provider, a doctor, whatnot, I don't care whether or not there, there are fewer cases coming in. I get paid anyway. So it, 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 now this is sounding like you're not against the welfare state as such. It's that you think it is being poorly administered and uh, not effectively run. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we... I have, uh, I, I can show you my daughter, for instance, was operating a, as a young student at, at, uh, in, in college. You have t teenage girls and, and young men sitting down, figuring out when to have a baby and what programs they're eligible for. You know, if we do Even this. Today yeah, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. This is yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, I have a niece that I tried, I spent thousands trying to get her out of the welfare trap. And yet, and I spent that, got a job, you know, went to pick her up in the most dangerous public housing project in Philly. My nephew, who's a cop in Philly, said, Uncle Rob, don't go there, man. I don't even go there with my mind on. And yet, I went there to pick her up. And in the middle of the day, 
Uh, she's sitting there with a drink in her hand, weeping the, and, and whatnot, because I couldn't compete with the welfare system they gave her. Uh, and, and so that, that, those conditions continue. It's creating a dependency on the part of a lot of people that we need to grassroots people that I support. And I want to talk about solutions, you know. Oh, yeah, we got time, Bob. We got okay. time. I, I, just want to, I just want to keep some structure on it. Yeah. This is a different argument against the welfare state. Now, this is an argument that it encourages people to patterns of behavior that are, are, are so, uh, self-limiting, yes. self-destructive. They become dependent. They think they've got something coming, and so they don't put in the effort that they need to get their lives together which is not uh, saying we shouldn't be trying to help them, but again, it's saying that the way we do it needs to take into account the effects of these incentives. Yeah, there's a celebrated, so, I'm sorry, there's a celebrated case in, in, in Milwaukee where a young woman saved part of her welfare check and, and saved $5,000 to send her daughter to college, and she was charged with a felony and brought into court, fined, and so what she said from that day on, that I will never do oh, because that again. She took, because she was receiving benefits without qualifying? No, no, she, she, qual no, no, she qualified, but she was not, she, she was, she was uh, penalized for, for keeping the money to be used for something other than welfare. She, she, oh, I see. She, she wanted to save it and invest in her daughter's future. And, and there are a lot of other, uh, for instance, in public housing policy, that the rent that you pay is a third of your income. Therefore, there's a perverse incentive to marry because it, if, if you marry, your income, your mortgage payment doesn't increase, nor does your rent if you're renting. But for poor people living in public housing at the time, if they marry and you're combining an income of a man and a woman, it means their rent is yeah. going to skyrocket. And so, therefore, there are other kinds of perverse incentives like that if you take a raise, you get you make more of a certain threshold, and therefore you can lose child uh, child care. So there are all kinds of nuances to, uh, that that constitutes the welfare trap. It is well intended, but ill conceived and 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 harmful to the very people that they say they're trying to help. Okay, I want to talk to you about your alternative. Then you say solutions. We don't have welfare. What do we do about poverty? No. Well, well, first of all, not everybody is poor for the same reason. Uh, that there are people who are just broke. <laughs> they don't have income. They, they lost a, love, a, a significant breadwinner died or factory moved away. And for people like that, they use the welfare system as it is intended, as an ambulance service, not as a transportation system. So for people like that, job training works. And their second class of poor people are poor. They have the right attitude and values, but there are perverse incentives for them to maintain. In other words, if I, if I get a raise on my job, I'll lose uh, child care and whatnot. If you take away the perverse incentives for people of that, that group, then they will be fine as well. Category four are people are physically disabled and whatnot. Um, for instance, in Appalachia, uh, in that category two, there was a families who were discouraging their children from reading because they will be disqualified from SSI payments, and the family depend upon the six hundred dollars that they were getting. And people in Appalachia opposed that. The last category, Glenn, that concerns me us most are people who are poor because of the chances they take and the choices that they make, it is their attitude. They have they, they need a value overhaul before help can be given. The Woodson Center concentrates on category four, and that is redemption and transformation must be promoted in people like that. And then they will be available for opportunity. They can take jobs. And our grassroots leaders, most of them are faith-centered, specialize in helping people who are poor that's and these are category four are the ones who concern most of us because these are the people who are the drain these are the people who are creating most of the problems but my groups the the woodson center's grassroots leaders my josephs 
they have shown a remarkable ability to reach out and witness to people like that and promote redemption and transformation in them uh, and, and, and with, with remarkable regularity. Changing the value structure, ministering to people at a level that's spiritual, getting them to look at themselves and at their world in a different light. Uh, religiously motivated in many cases. Uh, working on transforming the values of people. That's that's pretty pretty deep stuff, uh, Bob. It's not exactly social policy, is it? No, it isn't social policy, but it's effective uh, uh, approach. I'll give an example. I was testifying before the Senate Banking Committee on the on the with three psychiatrists, and we were talking about uh, faith-based drug rehab and uh, programs versus secular therapeutic approach. And I said to these these three people, I said, you know, let, this was some years ago. Last summer, I took my 13-year-old daughter and my 16-year-old son to spend a week volunteering in Outcry Nevada, a Christ-centered drug program, recovery program in San Antonio, Texas. And we volunteered. About midway through that uh, visit, Nifa uh, Garcia, who was a recovered drug addict, who's the wife of Freddie, said to these two women, I want you to take the van and take Bob's Bob's daughter and my three granddaughters in the van Take them to dinner and take them to the amusement park and have them back by nine tonight. And as they were walking out the door, she said, Bob, relax. They're ex-prostitutes and drug addicts. The kids will be just fine. (laughs) 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 And I was leaving. They were leaving. So I turned to these psychiatrists. I said, how many of you sitting here would trust the effectiveness of your therapeutic intervention to the point where you would trust your 13-year-old daughter to go with two of your ex-patients? Would you do it? Shouldn't, and I would gladly do it because the one thing that I know is the criminal lifestyle makes you very discerning. There's no way Freddie and Nympha can be fooled by anybody because they have been there, done that. But i that's the level of confidence that I have in their ability to help transform and redeem people. Shouldn't that count for something when we're trying to evaluate the effectiveness of interventions? Isn't there a way way that professionals can can find to, to explore how and why a person like me with a master's degree, with this, I, 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 I have an advanced degree in, and, and child therapy, I have all that, that training. But I trusted this intervention with the most precious thing that I have in my life. Shouldn't that count for something when we're trying to assess the efficacy of interventions, Glenn? Yeah, certainly I think it should. I mean... <laughs> The statistician is going to say, okay, I need a treatment group and I need a control group. And is there a significant difference in the outcome for the group that's treated and whatnot? But, but that's, not the, that's not the be all and end all of, of uh, social uplift and inspiration and transformation and conversion. I mean, you know, and you're talking about faith. Uh, the the but will come about getting the scale. You know, this is something that might work within a church congregation, within a community leader, uh, you know, group, but but might not be something you can make a national policy out of. Uh, and also dependence upon faith. I mean, because you're talking to people about their basic values, uh, you're you're converting them to particular religious convictions and whatnot. And that's something the government has to stay away from. So. So what do you say about that? What do you say about how this is small scale? It may work at the level of a congregation, but it can't be a national policy. And what do you say about the fact that a lot of people are not religious at all and government money going to religious 
etc. You, you see what? Okay, I'm yeah. Let me let me answer a micro question, then I want to take challenge you on the larger thing about scale. You know, what I mean, it's very interesting that people make that argument, but I don't know of anybody, even an atheist, who names their son Judas. I don't. Okay. And, and also, I think Dennis Prager raised something one time. I mean, show me anywhere in the country where someone has named their son Judas. Maybe they have. Maybe someone watching it. But Dennis Prager said something many years ago about this thing. He says, if you were riding through a high crime neighborhood at 11 o'clock at night and you ran out of gas and you had to walk two blocks to a gas station and you around the corner came two groups of men. One just left a bar, and the second group just left Bible study. Which group would you want to confront? Okay? That's an easy question. Yeah. yeah. And so the question is, then then, then why? But let me me challenge you on the whole issue of scale, because I hear this a lot. Um, In my first book, I talked about uh, Philadelphia being the gang capital of America and how Sister Fatana, her husband, took in uh, these six, uh, 15 gang members, and, her six, and they all came together with her six sons, and they lived in this house. And as a consequence, within four years, their influence spread citywide, and Philadelphia went down from the youth gang capital of America down to two, from 48 deaths to two. In 83, Glenn, uh, uh, some years after that, the city of, of Philadelphia was plagued with what they call wolf pack attacks. Groups of five black young people would come together and just knock people down, snatch purses. And, and it spread throughout the subway systems, of the, like you're seeing these flash mob things today. The city had no answer to it. I went to the house of Umoja, and I asked, can Umoja do anything about it? They identified four OGs, they call old gangsters. They went with us to the prison, and they recruited 120 inmates in what they call a crime prevention task force. These inmates said, these are the names of 150 young people from our various neighborhoods throughout the Bring them here to us. Kenny Gamble, the music mogul, gave us the money to rent school buses, and we brought 150 kids from all over the city, and we had a meal in the in the gymnasium because kids will fight when they're drinking together, not when they're eating together. I think there's something biblical about that. Anyway, long story short, there were the imam spoke, I spoke, Sister Fatah, local black, a pastor spoke. Those inmates said to those young people, this is destroying our community. It must stop. The wolf pack attack stopped throughout the whole city overnight, never to occur wow. again. The question was, why? where was Marvin Wolfgang at the University of Pennsylvania School of Criminal Justice that received $4 million a year to do crime prevention intervention studies? Where, where were all of the scholars to come in and say, how is that possible? Tell me what you did. No, the city gave the program a lot of awards, uh, but no rewards. I raised private sector dollars to maintain uh, uh, some of this. But the point uh, of this is, it, this is an example about just four individuals with the right kind of influence, the moral uh, uh, and, 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 and ethical uh, 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 influence that they can take a small group of people and then take them and bring them in and bring about a change of an entire city. If this is done without, with just limited resources, with one program that was effective, why can't we do this in other cities? And we have demonstrated that you can target places and do it. But you got to believe well, it, Glenn, in order to. As I'm invest. sure you're aware, Bob, Philadelphia is a basket case now in terms of crime. They've exceeded 500 uh, homicides in a year for the first time in, I don't know, 35 years. Uh, you've got this uh, open argument between former mayor Michael Nutter 
and uh, sitting uh, uh, the district attorney Krasner, uh, a uh, self-consciously progressive DA who's been elected uh, as a Democrat in Philadelphia to transform uh, policing, to tra not policing, he's not chief of police, he's the DA, but to transform criminal justice policy in the city, uh, get rid of cash bail, uh, you know, uh, not bring all these cases for low level property crimes and whatnot. And uh, Philadelphia is only one of a dozen cities about which a similar story could be told. Baltimore, close to you in D.C., uh, also uh, having trouble with uh, the mayor and the commis police commissioner and the district attorney, all self-consciously progressive black women, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who are uh, presiding over a disaster. Chicago, my hometown, carjackings are through the roof, homicides are through the roof, assaults are through the roof. Uh, guns are everywhere, et cetera, St. Louis. I mean, we could go on for a long time. But it makes so, a class issue. The, but it makes a class issue. But let me tell you what, it's even gotten worse. And I, I just read that in San Fran, uh, uh, um, Seattle, there's a ballot initiative that will reduce the enhancements of people who engage in drive-by shootings because of racial, equ racial equity, because a higher number of black gang members are guilty of drive-by shootings. And therefore, since it adversely affects them, they're going to try to reduce the penalties in the name of racial equity. Yeah. But trust me, the people advocating this do not live in those neighborhoods suffering the problem. Yeah. That's the point. 80% of blacks living in those communities are against defund the police. And so that makes my class argument. I want to read you something that Jesse Jackson said when he was a force for good. Uh, back in 1978, Jesse Jackson said this. He said that our children are living in depressed neighborhoods are on the verge of ethical collapse. That morally weak people not only inhibit their own personal growth, but finally contribute to the politics of decadence. A generation of people lacking the moral and physical stamina necessary to fight a protracted civilizational crisis is a dangerous to itself, its neighbors, wow. and to future generations. This was just exactly. Civilizational crisis. Civilizational no crisis. crisis. Moral. The foundation of it is moral. People right. Without morals. So this is what he said in 19 in, in Ebony Magazine. And he was talking about the, the black community. community. He was talking about it then. The same issue that Jesse Jackson talked about today, our grassroots people are saying the same thing. That I really think that the only answer to this, oh, oh this, these, this violence is not happening in San Diego, California. That city is about the same size as Baltimore. The question, why is it happening in some cities and not others? It is happening well, in these the progressive cities where where will defund the police, is nullifying the police. But even like the chairman of, uh, of city council in Los Angeles, who was a big advocate of defund the police, but she had personal police protection at her home 24-7. Yeah. And that's that's the moral uh, inconsistency that that the, that they don't have to suffer the consequences of their advocacy, but but the people that I serve, they are the ones who are in these uh, these communities uh, where elderly people are being being beaten and and, and home invasion. And, and so, by the way, by the way, that's also true. It seems to me the thing that I'm saying is true is the interest of the governing classes, and they are often people of color, diverging from the interests of the governed classes. Uh, the governing classes impose policies that create costs for the governed, which the governing people themselves never have to bear. I think that's true about criminal justice. They've got security. They purchase safety for themselves, and they experiment with policies that uh, really adversely affect the safety of people who can't move and who can't put themselves behind gates and hire security guards to protect them. But I think that's also true in education, Bob, where policies that lead to failure to deliver quality educational services to kids 
and whose parents have no alternative but to send them to underperforming public schools, policies that would help them are opposed by people who would never, ever, ever uh, countenance sending their children to a school where they thought that the uh, level of uh, education was not was not adequate. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I've been fighting this a long time. Eleanor Holmes Norton, Jesse Jackson Jr. Uh, <laughs> I can go all of the civil rights leaders who were in Washington, D.C. sent their kids to Sidwell Friends School. Barack Hussein Obama. Barack Obama. And all of them, while at the same time, opposing choice for the people living in those in those communities. And and. And I'll tell you something else that 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 the Congressional Black Caucus, if I think it was 2011, they get they were raising about 60 million dollars from corporations, and a lot some of that a lot of that money was supposed to be spent for scholarships for the children in their districts, poor children in their districts. Well, they, it was revealed that the bulk of that money went to the grandchildren of caucus members, as well as the children of black staff working for the caucus. And yet it was no, and, and so, and, and they just treated it like, oh, we made a mistake. But it was not, it didn't rise to the level of a scandal. There were no, uh, there were no um, uh, investigation, no, no uh, uh, reports on television. It wasn't treated like the scandal that it was. And that is, and again, this is an example of an racial exemption from any personal responsibility. And there are other examples of a flagrant abuse. And yet the same people who took voluntary, I mean, uh, private sector dollars and spent it on their own grandchildren instead of on the low income people in their district are the same people calling for reparations and more government spending uh, on, uh, for government, if if they use private dollars that were raised to help kids, what are they going to do with public dollars? But 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 you know it's heresy to even raise these kinds of questions because again we are supposed to, and we're living in an era of racial exemption from any personal responsibility. That's my point. Oh, okay, we're we're covering a fair amount of ground here. We don't like you don't like, and I have my own questions about the welfare state, about the incentives and so forth that are built into it. The track record of the war on poverty isn't uh, entirely uh, a successful one. Um, you are skeptical about uh, leadership within the African American community because you think that the class differentiation and the differences of interest between those who are uh, who are providing. Uh, "Quote unquote services or representation, and those who are dependent are are so great. You think spirituality is an important part of any solution that people have to be reached at the level of what their values are and how they look at themselves in their lives, and that a religious dimension to that uh, outreach is is fundamental. You think grassroots organizations close to the where the problems are are, are should be um, much more prominently." Uh, represented in uh, efforts to help people, and that scholars should pay a good deal more attention to what it is that they do. And you want to get out out of the race business somehow. You say, uh, "Let's talk about something other than race." Can you talk? Can you explain that part of it? What, what's your your problem? I mean, since you are a black leader yourself, uh, and, and since often these community examples that you're giving are black people in housing projects, Kimmy Gray, in the uh, Sister Fatah in Philadelphia, and so forth and so on. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your problem with the way people are using race and racial claims in American politics. Again, I go back to why I left the civil rights movement <laughs> in the first place, and that is I picketed, we picketed about two months outside of Wyatt Laboratories in Westchester, the home of Baird Rustin, where I led demonstrations. And when they desegregated, they hired nine black PhD chemists. And when we asked these brothers and sisters to join the movement, they said that we got these jobs, we were qualified, not because of what you were doing. When that happened two or three more times, I realized that I was in the wrong struggle. Um, and because there was a bait and switch game going on. And, and, and then I found that when I went to the Urban League, um, where uh, right at the end of that Nixon uh, government, and I took over budgets, uh, programs, that was supposed to have been funded at $300,000. And I saw only half the money left and not, no activity. 
And I realized where that money went to. And so I really think that uh, what we need to do today, there should be a one-year moratorium on whining about white folks. We should just leave them out. of. Uh, we have to address the enemy within. The problems of the restoration of our neighborhoods are going to come from within the community suffering the problem. And therefore, we have at the Woodson Center, we're working with a group of what we call OGs. These are guys who've been in prison for many years. Once their character changes, their characteristic has an advantage because they've got influence on the street. And so what we're doing is funding some of those groups to create an island of peace within the community by using the influence to, to, to deter young people from engaging in self-destructive behavior. We've done it before 25 years ago, but we went into an area where there were 53 murders in a, uh, a five-square block area, and we created peace where there wasn't a gang murder for 12 years, Glenn. So we have we've demonstrated that the principle of investing in local people with the trust and confidence can have an enormous impact. We're trying to get the funding so we can take the models that we have established there and around the country and take it and, and, and accept the challenge to go into a large neighborhood and demonstrate that our approach works when the other approach of defund the police or funding uh, more shot detectors or cameras is not working. Well, that's very exciting. I'd like to stay on top of that uh, to expand these uh, efforts of the sort that you're describing and uh, to really test out uh, the relative effectiveness of them compared to other things that people are talking about. Um, so, Bob, you talk now about the solutions that are being pursued by projects affiliated with the Woodson Center. C can we talk about some yeah, of that work? Yeah, yeah thanks, Ben. Um, well, first of all, it's part of our, in our essays that, uh, that you and other scholars are helping us we're looking back, Glenn, at saying when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best. We talked about the fact that there's this myth that somehow the problems we're facing today are related to the legacy of slavery and discrimination. But we point out in Chicago, for instance, in 1929, during the height of segregation and Jim Crow, blacks established the Black Wall Street there, 731 black-owned businesses, 100 million in real estate assets out of wedlock birth, under 10%. And there are other cities where these kinds of uh, uh, developments occur. And so it's important for our people to be motivated to know that when whites were at their worst, we were at our best. And so what we're doing is taking those old values that promote and then apply them today uh, in, in the urban centers uh, we, we, we see, and so what we see examples of, of restoration like that, uh, of 600 kids going to, uh, high to college from one public housing development over the course of 12 years. Um, so there are islands of excellence like that. Um, and, and so we are trying to promote the Piney Wood School. Uh, you hundred and what is the Pinewood School? Explain was, that to the audience. It's a hundred and fifteen year old black boarding school in Pinewood, Mississippi, near Jackson, Mississippi, that was started, and, and they've taken then uh, children from very distressed neighborhoods, and they take them from uh, eighth grade to twelfth grade. They literally stay. And it's a boarding school, and and they're from the worst conditions families. And 96% of the kids who come there from these distressed neighborhoods go on to college. And this has been a, a, a repeated over the course of years. Kathy Hughes, the communications mogul, her grandfather is the founder of it. And it's an example. And Will Crosley, Crosley graduated from Pontywood School. He has a Harvard uh, law degree. He and his wife uh, went back seven years ago to become the CEO of Piney Wood. And it's an example of traditional values in action, mandatory work, mandatory chapel. They chain black farmers. 
They have a, a, a what's the relationship to the Woodson Center of the Pine? We Wood? are they are a, a partner with us. We have raised a million dollars in scholarship funds for the Piney Wood School. We believe those of us in the country, if you really believe in the traditional values of America, uh, then we should support, support institutions that reflect and embody those values. Um, and that's why Piney Wood School is in partnership with the Woodson Center. We're helping them to raise hopefully millions so they uh, so that the thousands of kids who graduate from there are models uh, or, or, or or reflect the values of our forefathers, and 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 they have brought forth these values today. Another of the projects at the Woodson Center that I have had some connection with is the Voices of Black Mothers United, and led by uh, Sylvia Bennett Stone, the remarkable woman who uh, I've interviewed here. Uh, t- t- tell us about that, uh, Bob. Well, the, what it is is that the biggest crisis facing this country today is a moral and spiritual crisis that is consuming children uh, through suicide, homicide, and, and opiate addiction. And so Sylvia lost her daughter, you know, uh, at age 19 to a drive-by shooting. But she took that grief and turned it into leadership. And so we have uh, supported her. She's reached, organized a group of Voices of Black Mothers United. There are now thousands of them have joined all over the country. And they are standing up and saying, we are against those who are talking about defunding the police. Uh, there are models, uh, I heard her on your show, for instance, in five cities, we have black mothers hired by the police department, so they respond to a murder scene, because that's where uh, the trust uh, uh, gets challenged of the police. So they act as a liaison between the police and the community, and, and, and as a consequence, the, rather than retaliate, they're more apt to tell the police as a result of this, their, their involvement in places where black mothers have been involved with the police, the closure rates on homicide have dramatically increased. Trust between the police and the community has also improved. And, and there are other uh, uh, things. Also, the tragic, within 10 years after a woman loses a child, about 28% end up dying themselves. So, the Voices of Black Mothers United is a way for black mothers who lose children to speak up for themselves and not these Hollywood or, or race hustlers who, uh, do, who are discouraged that kind. We're coming together with white mothers who lost their children to homicide, I mean, to suicide and, and, and those in Appalachia who've lost their children to, to opiate addiction. 20 years ago, 17,000 young people died of opiate addiction. Today, that's 100,000. And so the biggest, so what we, one of the ways, Glenn, we think we can get race off the table is that we brought together a consortium of these three groups. Uh, Sylvia together with these two moms about four weeks ago. And we are really coming together to, to, to having mothers united to save our children so that they can push the race. Race has to come off the table in order for us to deal with this deeper crisis facing our, our can country. I, can I just underscore what you're saying? So this is Sylvia Bennett-Stone is an African-American woman, and she lost her child to gun violence in a black community, et cetera. So that's an inner city problem. That's sort of, quote, unquote, a black problem. Mothers in Appalachia or someplace else whose kids are using opioids and who are overdosing and are dying are losing their children. Under the auspices of the Woodson Center, these white uh, mothers losing their children to drug uh, assault and these black mothers perhaps losing their children to gun violence are coming together to talk about how mothers deal with the uh, trauma of losing their children. This is remarkable, uh, Bob. This is really wonderful. Well, there's a third element, and that is people don't realize that in Silicon Valley, where they're... uh, where, where there are most 96% of two-parent households with master's degree with a median income of 180000 
the, the suicide rate among teenagers is six times the national average. So you can't say to a mom living there who lost a 17-year-old daughter to suicide that somehow she's, she's privileged and a woman in losing a daughter in the black community is somehow, uh, uh, you know, racial injustice is the biggest challenge she's faced. No. What we are facing is a moral and spiritual crisis that our young people are devaluing life. And if you devalue your life, then you will take your own or someone else's. And so when our moms come together, we can share strategies for filling that hole that is in the hearts of our children that causes them to devalue their life to the point where they'll either take their own or take someone else's. And by coming together and putting race aside, if we had to look at ourselves through the racial prism, it'll prevent us from coming together with real solutions as to how to fill that empty space in the children and uh, children's lives. And so we really think that this is the only way, Glenn, we can push the race issue off the table. The moral and spiritual crisis afflicting young people in America knows no class bound and it knows no racial bound. No. And that's the root of the problem you're saying, and it's, it sounds pretty good to me. Pastor Corey Brooks of Chicago. Uh, I just heard that he's camped out on a roof of a <laughs> building and he's been up there. He's going to be up there for a hundred days. Is that. Pastor, this is one of your associates as well. Tell us a little bit about what he's doing in, in my hometown. Corey Brooks is a, is a pastor there who's, who's is a real soldier. And this is the second time he's been on the roof. <laughs> there was a, there was a, there was a. Uh, he's living he's up living there 24 seven. He's just raised a million dollars, man. He's met his goal. And he wants to build a facility in the community to help restore it. He has two ex-gang members who are working with him who, who's, you know, once their character changes, the characteristic has an advantage. And so, <laughs> and so Corey is working with them and others. Again, he is an example of a healing agent, a Joseph, who is, uh, collectively, they represent a whole immune system. And that's why what Corey is trying to do is, is heal that community from within the, 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 the body of the community, that the healing agents are already uh, abides in the community. All, all. And what he's tr- trying to do is get the resources that he needs so he can help that the Chicago heal from the inside out and from the bottom up. Project Hood. Helping others obtain their destiny. Uh, I think that's I think that's pretty good. John Ponder out in Las Vegas. This is another one of your affiliates who's uh, doing some remarkable stuff. Tell us about what he's doing. John Ponder was a man who was in and out of jail from the time he was fourteen, and he's the he's the only one, Glenn, that I know was facing. Usually, when you come for sentencing. You know, you're in the city jail. Well, he was in solitary confinement. <laughs> but he <laughs> and um, he found Christ there, and not like a lot of people. I tell people, you find Christ in prison, and you leave him at the door. He'll be there when you come back. But John Ponder <laughs> is somebody who found Christ in that situation. I came before the judge and said, you know, do what you have to do. But you know, and the judge sentenced him to, instead of 27 years that he was scheduled, he got seven years. And when John came into this maximum security prison, sometimes when you come in, you got to face what they call the table. You got to choose what gang you're going to join. And John came before them and said, I belong to Christ, you know, but I know what the deal is. Do what you have to do. So he turned his back expecting to be knifed when they let him go. But then he had to confront loneliness. But then gang members started to come to say, can you pray for my brother? Can you pray for my sister? Long story short, when John got out, he established hope for prisoners. The persons that first came around him as partners was the FBI agent that locked him up, the the U.S. attorney who prosecuted him, and the judge who sentenced him. They became his mentor team. (laughs) 
with, again, is out of the box. <laughs> and since then, John uh, uh, works, ministers to people in prison and helps them when they get out. And he has now reached over 3,000 people, uh, helped them connect to jobs. 40% of his mentors are police officers and members of law enforcement who locked up the very people that they're now mentoring. And, and so John has a very, and as a consequence of this relationship, a violent assault uh, interactions between the minority community and police are dramatically down because in Las, in Vegas. Las Vegas. So John has demonstrated uh, many things. Uh, every year he has a Christmas party where he actually brings into the gymnasium gets corporations to set up couches and small living rooms with Christmas trees. And for the first time, inmates are touching their children. And John has done this. Uh, And now it's gotten so big, they actually had to move out of the prison. And Hope for Prisons even has its own wing that people who want to change can transfer into that wing ring of of the jail. So when they trend the last year, they can transition into John's program. I just think it's one of the most fabulous. I happen to be on his board now, but I just think that when you're talking about innovation, where police and where John has 40% of the people who are, who are mentoring people coming out of prisons are the very police officers that lock them up. There's an example of innovation that only comes from the bottom up and a grassroots leader like John Ponder. I notice that there is a faith dimension to every one of these examples that you've uh, that you've described here. Every one of them, uh, every every one that that's effective because you're changing a person's heart. And, and again, there are all kinds of examples, Glenn. And and those Bob, I didn't hear during all those demonstrations in the summer. Excuse me for interrupting. Of 2020, after George Floyd was killed, and there were people marching all over this country. Marching for racial justice, marching for black lives. I didn't. I didn't hear the name Jesus very often at all uh, in all of that. Cur- all of that uh, commotion. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, I just think it's a sham. They just used, you know, the, the you know, black America was used, that was was really chattel or property by the slave owners, and for the progressives, they're pawns. <laughs> they're just pawns. And they're talking about social justice for George Floyd, and they rioted in the name of social justice. But when they went to Portland, they quickly migrated to denigrating the, 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 the Christian cross, the nuclear family, uh, as being Eurocentric and therefore racist. So they just use and hijack the rich legacy of the civil rights movement. They, are, they don't care. They don't give a damn about poor people or black people. Uh, because they are denigrating the very valuable values that enabled black America to survive slavery and Jim Crow. It was our Christian faith. It was our family between 1930 and 1940 when, when racism was enshrined in law. When we, well, the unemployment rate in the black community was 40%, it was 25% in the white community. It, we had the highest marriage rate of any other group in America. Highest marriage rate. And everybody was a Christian, even if you didn't go to, go to church. <laughs> it, it, that was a predominant influence in our community. It was our faith. It was a commitment to self-determination. And it was the re- sense of resilience that we experienced that young people don't know about. And as you know, Glenn, in one of our essays, when Walter Williams talks about there were five black high schools at the turn of the century that operate in crumbling buildings on half the budgets of white schools. And yet those schools out-tested every white school in that, in those cities. And the question was how and why were we able to achieve in the face of these external challenges when we cannot do the same, children are barely reading by 10% of the children could barely read in some of those same schools today. But these are the kinds of, uh, of 
understanding that I uh, that our people need to embrace. Then people are motivated when they see victories that are possible, both past and present. Not always reminding them that uh, of, of injuries to be avoided. Yeah. We've covered a lot of ground, Bob. I'd, I'd like to close by making an announcement, uh, if, if I may, uh, because uh, I've been uh, thinking for a while here at the Glenn Show about the great blessings that we've enjoyed uh, with the success of the show, with the, the subscribers at Substack, with the advertising revenue that's coming in from the YouTube uh, channel and so forth. Um, and, uh, I, you know... When we first started out, we didn't have enough money. We barely could keep the <laughs> lights on. I'm, you know, I got a nice microphone here. I used to have a little crappy microphone. And, uh, you know, uh, we got a uh, production team that helps to make the show look good and creative director and the uh, editor at the newsletter and whatnot. These guys got to be paid and whatnot. And I came to you with my hand out, Bob, actually saying, can you help me? And you, you guys were kind enough at the Woodson Center to show some uh, love for a brother over here, uh, even if I am a professor <laughs> and not a grassroots leader. And I'd like to return the favor. I want the world to know I'm committed to tithing oh, from the net proceeds of the Glenn Show. We are going to give 10% of the net revenues of the oh, Glenn man, Show man. to the Woodson Center to underwrite some of these initiatives that you have heard being described uh, here uh, today. And further than that, I'd like to, uh, if people are willing, over the course of the next months and years, uh, share this platform and, and talk with some of these people about their work so that my audience and the broader public can learn more about solutions to some of these problems inspired by faith, carried out by heroic souls who are laboring in the vineyards uh, to uh, try to bring uh, comfort and hope. He says, helping others obtain their destiny. This is Corey Brooks in Chicago, but he's, uh, you know, in that respect, no different than John Ponder, and he's no different than, than uh, uh, Sylvia Bennett Stone and all the others in bringing hope to these people. I want to be a part of that, Bob, if you'll help me. Glenn, God bless you, man. And, and you've, you've always been there for us, man. And, and I, I, I'm... I'm speechless, and that's hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> I want the audience supporting the Glenn Show to know that you are what is making this moment possible, and I'm just a vehicle. I'm just a conduit uh, to uh, be able to try to put my finger on the scale, on the right side of the scale, to make a difference in these troubled times that we live well, in. Well, I, uh, I just want to thank you, and I, I, I want to pray that that God empties me of, of self-importance so that his blessings can fill this space within me so I can continue, as you are doing, Glenn, to be a servant. That's what I hear you saying. That I seek downward, that downward mobility is what I seek. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to be here forever, so no. we better make up our minds what we are about, and we better get busy. <laughs> Again, on, on, on behalf of the 2,500 grassroots leaders in 39 states, Glenn, I wanted to tell you how blessed we are to have that kind of commitment. It's the first that I've ever seen in all my days that someone like you would make such a commitment. And so, God bless you. Thank you, Bob. And uh, with that, uh, why don't we call it a day? I've been with Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, Washington, D.C., which is doing a lot of good work, uh, which we've had the opportunity to review only a small part of it here in the last hour. Thanks a lot, Bob. All right.